Today's reading is taken from Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 8, verses 11, to chapter 9, verses, verse 8, and then we'll be moving on to chapter 9, verse 18 and 19. You'll find it on page 187 in the Church Bibles, We're starting at chapter 8, verse 11. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers, as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them, he will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand then, that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you, ar you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. And then chapter, uh, verse 18. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord for forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of the sin, because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight, and so provoking him to anger. 
I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you, angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. This is the word of the Lord. But before we begin, I'll lead us in a prayer. Here's what Paul says in Galatians. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, that is our prayer this morning, that as we look at Moses' words, you will cause us not to boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we're on page uh, 187. If you've closed it, please reopen it. Now, chances are, in the past couple of decades, you would have bought one of these items. Um, Do you know what it is? Carbon monoxide detector. Um, Chance, everyone got one of these? Is that right? Not just me. Okay. (laughs) Um, So um, why would you have bought one of those? Well, because you've become aware of the danger of carbon monoxide. You'll know that carbon monoxide is uh, something you can't see, you can't taste it, you can't touch it, and everything can look perfectly normal at home, but actually, secretly, there's this gas there that could kill you. Now, we start on that slightly sober note this morning, not so we go out and panic by carbon monoxide alarms, although that wouldn't be a bad thing to do, but because this morning we're going to see a carbon monoxide to our faith. See, Moses speaks to us about a threat that often goes unnoticed. You can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't taste it, but it will creep in, and if you're not aware, it will slowly suffocate you and kill your faith without you even noticing. Now, what is this threat? Well, we we see it here in chapters 8 to 11. Now, you can imagine chapters 8 to 11 as a, a sandwich Um, This is where the house group leaders start scribbling down notes. Um, Because on the outside um, of chapters 8 to 11, we've got uh, the bread, if you like. And we have Moses calling the people to have faith, to trust God alone. So the beginning of chapter 8 and chapter 11. But in the middle of this sandwich, the second half of chapter 8, chapter 9 and chapter 10, the filling, the meat, uh, Moses focuses on what threatens that faith. Now, the reason I think Moses does this is because he knows that genuine faith isn't just kind of faith in God, but but also having faith in a number of other things as well. But he knows genuine faith is faith in God alone. And so what he does is outline all those things that might threaten faith in God alone. And that's where we're going to focus this morning. So what is this threat? Well, you, you might imagine that this threat is big scary enemies or persecution that might come. But actually, the first thing we see about this threat is it comes from a place of security. See, God is um, about to take them into the promised land, and they're going to experience prosperity like they've never encountered. Just look at chapter 8, verse 7 again. It says this, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. Do you know, this is it's even better than Basingstoke. Can you believe it? 
But the thing is, this presents a danger for the people. Have a look at verse 13. And when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Have a look at verse 17. You may say to yourself, this is what, this is what the danger is, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Do you see the point? Um, the enemies aren't on the outside. The threat comes from the inside. The voice that says, I've done this. I've made it for me. See, Moses knows that this change in their circumstances is going to present a huge test for their hearts. See, up to this point, they've, they've been in the desert uh, for a number of decades, and uh, God has fed them with miracle food called manna. And Moses says that this taught them an important lesson. Have a look back at chapter 8, verse 3, uh, about what this taught them. Moses says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither, knew, uh, sorry, which neither you nor your fathers had known. Here's the point. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, manna taught them that they depended on God for everything. Do you see? So you can imagine, can't you? Imagine you're a young child in this, this Israelite community. And um, you, you get a bit older and you start to notice that the, the kitchen cupboards, when you go to bed, are empty. And you think to yourself, that's strange because we had dinner this evening. And you ask your parents, yeah, why, the, why is the kitchen empty? And they said, don't worry about it. And you get up the next day and you notice your parents go out to, on the ground and they start gathering up some substance and they bring it back in and they start cooking your lunch and your dinner. And at the end of the day, you notice again, the cupboards are empty. You think to yourself, that's strange because we did eat. And uh, you ask your parents and they say, don't worry, God will provide. And you notice the same thing happened the next day and the next day, and the next day. And after a while, you just stop thinking about it. You know every day God provides. He fills your kitchen cupboards. But now that process is going to stop. Um, see, they're going to have food. They're going to have drink. They're going to have prosperity beyond, beyond imagining. And Moses says, watch out, that when that happens, you don't think to yourself, I did this, not God. I deserve this. It's It's me. After university, I um, left university, and um, I had probably one of the most difficult times as an early, early Christian. Um, I moved back with my parents, and I'm pretty sure it was a difficult time for them as well, with me coming home. <laughs> but um, it was a difficult time because I, I came home to, to no job and no kind of understanding of what I would do with my life in the future. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been in this position. You send off lots of job applications, and you pour your heart and soul into them, but then they don't even respond back, and you wonder if it's been lost. And uh, despite um, it being quite a difficult time, I remember I had no car, no money to go out with friends, that sort of thing, so I was just kind of getting up and applying for jobs and going to bed. I, um, despite all that, I grew massively as a Christian. I learned to pray, and I hadn't really learned that before, to, to depend on the Lord and to pray that he would help me in my circumstances and situation. And after a few weeks, I... Um, got a job, a, a, a great job, a, a job that fitted me very well, a graduate job in London. And um, I was so relieved. I, I gave thanks to God and so chuffed. 
um, that he'd answer my prayers in that way. And roll on the clock a little bit. I remember sitting in my office with my kind of height adjustable desk. That's pretty cool, my kind of Cisco phone, and just thinking, this is pretty good. This is pretty good. And um, I got an email from my church pastor who said, have you got your number? Because I want to get in touch with you about something. So sent an email back. Here's my number. And he phoned me up, and uh, we talked about something I can't remember now. And uh, he, said to, he said to me, obviously you've got your own number. I was like, yeah. He was like, it's pretty cool, isn't it? You know, early 20s, and you've got your own number. I was like, yeah, I've got my own desk, high adjustable and everything. And uh, started talking about that. And, uh, and I just, without thinking, just said, yeah, I've earned it. And put the phone down. And just thought, you idiot, Rob. You absolute idiot. See, prosperity does that, doesn't it? It makes us feel self-confident, so we forget the Lord. See, making wealth isn't a bad thing in itself. Uh, The land God was giving Israel was was good, and God has designed a world where if we work at its raw materials, we can make good things for ourselves. But that does bring with it the temptation of self-confidence. Now, I realize in a group like this, not all of us uh, are going to be wealthy, and some of us will struggle day by day with financial difficulties. But for the majority of us, by global and historic standards, we are experiencing unprecedented prosperity. And it's very easy in that context to kind of slip into the thinking that I've done it. It's my work. I'm self-sufficient. But like my comment on the phone to my pastor, it is nonsense. Because in reality, we didn't create our situation, did we? We didn't make our life. We didn't make the world. We might be prosperous, but but that's largely down to the fact that we're born at a time in which our hard work is rewarded in the way that it is. Now, the trouble is, Moses' view here, it, it stands in complete contrast to the way our culture thinks See, we live in a, in a culture, in an age that teaches what I call the gospel of aspiration. What do I mean by that? Well, when I was growing up, I, I didn't have a huge amount. Um, I was very fortunate. I had a happy childhood. But we, we didn't have a lot, um, like everyone else, and certainly not by today's standards. But I picked up the message that if I worked hard, if I slaved away, if I aspired, then I could be wealthy. And it's a view that's almost taken as common sense in our society. People say it, uh, whether you're on the left or the right in your politics, you hear, if you aspire, if you work hard, you can do it. Just listen to our previous prime minister. He said this, um, we just get behind people who want to get on in life, the doers, the risk takers, the young people who dream of their first paycheck, the first car, their first home, and are ready and willing to work hard to get those things. So you get the message, don't you? Work hard and you will get rewarded. And the trouble is with that sort of rhetoric, it has given us the impression that our prosperity is down to us and us alone. We look after ourselves. Now, a guy called um, Alan de Bouton, um, he's written this book called uh, Status Anxieties. It's very, very good. I don't think he's a Christian. Um, And... um, he basically tries to answer that question of kind of why are we so prosperous but still so anxious and so unhappy. And uh, he says this about our culture. He says this, the ability to accumulate wealth 
is prized for reflecting the presence of at least four cardinal virtues. Creativity, courage, intelligence, and stamina. The presence of other virtues, humility or godliness, for example, rarely detains attention. Achievements are attributed uh, not, uh, sorry, achievements are not attributed as in past societies to luck or providence or God. Remember, this guy's not a Christian as far as I can tell. A reflection of modern secular society's faith in individual willpower. So we don't attribute things to God, but our faith is in individual willpower. But Moses answers in chapter 8, verse 18, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Remember the Lord your God. Maybe for you this um, has been a bit of a barrier to expressing Christian faith yourself. You look at your life, and, and if you're honest, you think, why do I need God? I, I've got all that I need. I've worked hard. I can look after myself. I don't need to lean on something else. But Moses says, look, beware of the carbon monoxide of self-confidence. You may have worked hard, and I'm not disputing that for a second, but it doesn't mean that everything is from you. And as Christians, can't we? We can stray into that same sort of thinking. We look at our prosperity, the things we enjoy, and we can think, well done me. I can look after myself. I can get myself out of situations. Now, I I began thinking to myself, what is it, Rob, that that kind of means you slip into that type of thinking? And um, I think it's this. I think it's Thanksgiving. See, I I know when I'm self-confident because my Thanksgiving drops. See, um, we give thanks, don't we, when we realize that we get something that we don't deserve. And the thing is, when we think that we do deserve something, we don't tend to give thanks See, thanks comes when I know I'm dependent on the Lord for everything. Now, we could say more on this, but I I want us to go on to the second point, because um, if we spent more time on that, we'd miss yet another subtle threat to our faith. See, in in chapter 9, Moses turns to another danger um, relating to the enemies they're about to face. Now, listen to to what awaits them. Chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel... uh, You are now about to cross the Jordan and go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, which are large cities and that have walls up to the sky. These people are strong and tall. If you can imagine this, these guys, the Anakites, are actually taller than me. Imagine that. It's incredible, isn't it? But uh, it's not a fair fight. Um, Their enemies are real heavyweights. But God says to them in verse 3, Be assured today that your Lord, your God, is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. See, God gives them the victory, but actually, if you read on, this presents a huge danger to their faith. Have a look at verse 4. After the Lord, your God, has driven them out before you, do not say in your heart to yourself, the Lord has brought me here, to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Do you see, this next danger is not the danger of defeat. It's the danger of victory. So you can just imagine, can't you, being a soldier on the front line in Israel, 
and uh, you, you proceed to the battle and you've got all, all the soldiers alongside you and, and you see these Anakites right in front of you and they are massive. And uh, they've got far superior weaponry and you think to yourself, my goodness me, how on earth are we going to defeat these guys? And the butterflies start to pop up in your stomach and you think to yourself, no, Moses did say, the Lord is with us. And as you start to engage in battle, you, they just crumble like sand. And you think, thank God that he did that for us. And as you walk home to your family, the, the family you wonder whether you would see again, you, you think God must have been pleased with us. He must have really loved us. He must really hate them. He, we must have done something that they, uh, we must have done something better than they did. But Moses says no, verse 5. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take the possession of the land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to his fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. See, the fact that God has shown grace to you is not because of your righteousness. Rather, it is because of their sin and God's promise to your fathers. See, the, the only reason Israel is going to experience this prosperity, this land that awaits them, is not because they're better than anyone else, but because God had chosen them. And Moses, in saying that, touches on a central truth to the Christian faith, that God saves people despite their sin not because of their righteousness. Here's what Titus 3 says. He says this, But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see the point? Not because of the righteous things we have done. It's not because you're any better. It's not because you scored higher on a morality test. It's not that God thought you were more upright than others. No, it's entirely down to His mercy alone. He gave us His Spirit. But you say to yourself, well, yeah, but haven't I believed? I mean, that's the difference, surely, that I've shown faith and other people haven't. But look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. See, even our belief is a gift from God. We bring nothing to the party. You have no righteousness. You have nothing special. You have no redeeming features. The only reason you enjoy relationship with him is because he chose you. See, we all come to the Lord in different ways. I loved hearing from Lizzie and Carl earlier. Um, just those two different, very different stories. Uh, one growing up, knowing a Christian, uh, knowing Jesus her whole life, and coming to a greater realization of him. Uh, one know, not knowing about Jesus. Uh, perhaps that's you, you've come to Jesus in those types of ways. Perhaps it's for you, it's been a Damascus Road experience, you met Jesus in, uh, in one moment. It all looks very different, don't we? I guess each of us have got a story to tell. But there's one thing that is in common with every single story, which is that God chose to put his love on you. Now, you might hear that and you think, I don't like that. That sounds unfair. 
And there's lots more I could say, so come and chat to me afterwards. But actually, I think this is the one of the most attractive things about the Christian faith. See, imagine for a second it was down to your righteousness. Just bear with me a second. You, you had something extra. Now, imagine how you would start to think about the people around you, your friend at work, your, your colleague, your, your neighbor. You'd start thinking, wouldn't you, that you've done something special. There's something special in you that makes you different from them. That God is pleased with you more than them. I mean, imagine what heaven would be like as people walk around thinking, well, I'm here because I did more righteous works, or I'm here because I showed more faith. I mean, I wouldn't want to go, would you? See, the idea that we have no righteousness of our own, that we're completely dependent on God's mercy, that's the antidote to self-righteousness. See, genuine faith says, it is not because of my righteousness that I will inherit the land. I, um, I really enjoy watching those um, uh, police camera programs. Does anyone watch those? Perhaps you don't want to admit it. Um, I don't know why I'm uh, admitting it either. But uh, <laughs> they're, they're, um, they're basically, they, they, they put together all the footage from the police body cams and the cameras in the car and Jamie Thickston narrates and it's brilliant. I mean, actually, most of the time, nothing happens. It's all build up. And uh, they think there's going to be a huge drugs bust, but uh, there's no one at home or something, and uh, they don't find anything. But occasionally, you, you do get a bit of action. They, someone kicks off, and you think, yeah, this is great. And I, um, I was finding myself watching a lot of these programs uh, recently, and I thought, Rob, why are you watching these? What's, what's the attraction? Is it that you kind of want another job, and you're dreaming about that, or is it something else? And I thought to myself, there is a bit of me that makes me feel a bit better after watching one of these. See, there's a sense in which I watch these people kicking off and smacking the police and all that sort of thing, and I think to myself, that is not me. Thank God that's not me. See, I'm a little bit better than them, and by seeing the kind of negative, I can feel more positive about myself. But then I began to realize, looking at this, that that is me. Without God's mercy, without his intervention, I'd be doing the same thing. I'm more like them than I am unlike them. And perhaps you find something similar when you're watching the news as well. See, self-confidence in our righteousness will kill our faith in God's mercy. And I wonder if we've strayed into that thinking. Where does it kind of boil up to the surface for you? Is it in the way you kind of think in your heart as you see other people around, certain groups, certain people behaving differently? groups that oppose the Christian faith. I wonder where it comes up for you. See, Moses says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot have self-confidence and confidence in the Lord. Self-confidence, wherever found in our money and our morality, is the carbon monoxide of genuine faith. It slips in unnoticed and quietly kills. Now, I realize that is quite a heavy thing to hear. And, we, and I guess we're, we're asking, well, what do we do about it? Where's the antidote? And, and that's what we're going to look at in our final point, because it is all about really putting our confidence somewhere else. And Moses shows us where. Now, to see this final point, you need to understand that, that Moses uh, reflects on what happened 40 years ago um, when God made a covenant with Israel. And Moses points out that Israel broke the agreement while the ink was still wet on the page. 
See, what happened, Moses was away, uh, he was up the mountain, and in the downtime, the people got together and they made an idol, a golden calf, and they worshipped it. In a moment of taste, they broke the first two commandments, and it was over. It's a huge scandal. Imagine a, a marriage takes place and the couple go off on their honeymoon, they arrive at the hotel, it's a beautiful place, and... One of the um, husband or wife says, uh, I'm going to go up to my room. I've had a long day and just going to get some rest. And the other party goes down to the bar and they get chatting to someone they meet. And after a few drinks, they go off to their room and begin an affair on the honeymoon. See, that's a shocking image, I know, but, but that's what God's people have done. Before it even got off the ground, they betrayed God in the most intimate way. And God's response to that betrayal is to start again. Have a look at 9 verse 14. He says this, Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you, Moses, into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. Now here, you might not notice this, but it's a real kind of crossroads moment for Moses. So you know those moments in the film where the main character has a huge decision to make and kind of everything slows down, the music gets very dramatic because you know that that one decision is going to set the course of their lives and other people's lives. See, Moses, right at this point, is being offered the chance to start again. God says, I'll destroy them and I'll make you into a great nation. Now, remember where Moses has been up to this point. He's seen God smash Egypt. He knows God can do it. And he has put up with the depths of sin of these people. He's seen them turn their back on him and God in the most awful way. You know, you wouldn't blame him, would you, for wanting to start again with him at the top. Yet what does Moses do? Well, look at 9 verse 18. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of the sin you have committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight, and so provoking him to anger. See, Moses' instinct is to step in for the people. And this isn't a quick prayer. This isn't even a midweek prayer meeting. But this is 40 days and 40 nights with pains of hunger in his stomach. See, it's remarkable, isn't it? Moses has been treated awfully by these people in the most deepest way, and yet he begs for them. He begs that God would show mercy, and his actions changes the history of this nation. See, we go from God wanting to destroy them to God turning his wrath from them. See, Moses wants the people to see the only reason they stand where they do on the edge of this prosperous land is because they have a mediator. And of course, Moses points to an even greater mediator. See, years later, there was another leader of God's people who faced a test in the wilderness. See, like Moses, this leader star was starving 40 days and 40 nights without food. And he was tempted to be self-reliant, to rely on his self-confidence. The devil tempted him to turn stones into bread. And do you know what Jesus quoted? Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
He was tempted to serve himself, to indulge himself. All the kingdoms of the world in all their splendor were offered to him. And yet he stayed faithful. He worshipped God alone. And this leader went on to face an even greater test where he faced the wrath of his father on the cross. See, despite the anguish that he knew awaited him, he stepped into the breach. He mediated for his people at the cost of his own life. He prayed, Father, forgive, even as people were hammering nails into his hands. See, the only reason you and me stand in the privileged position we do today, knowing that we're forgiven completely, knowing that we have a prosperous new creation to look forward to, it's because you and me have a mediator. We have no boast in ourselves. We have no self-confidence. We have no faithfulness to boast of. We would not be any more faithful to God in keeping his covenant than Israel was. But we do have a mediator, someone who has stepped in for you so that you may not be destroyed. See, the antidote to the carbon monoxide of self-confidence is Christ-confidence knowing that he and he alone mediates for us. I love the words of um, this recent song. He fights for breath. He fights for me, losing sinners from the claims of hell. And with a shout, our souls are free, death defeated by Emmanuel. Let's pray. The Lord listened to me at this time, and it was not his will to destroy you. Our gracious Father, forgive us. Forgive us when we put our confidence in ourselves, whether in our prosperity, whether in our own righteousness. We have no boast, no claim of our own. We praise you, our Lord Jesus, that you mediated for us. Cause our hearts to be moved so that we rely on nothing else but what you achieved on the cross. Amen.